Good morning, everybody, and welcome to welcome to church. Uh, we okay? They were ringing a little. We, we'll get this sorted. Hey, um, we are back into the Gospel of John. We took a break over this over the summer, and if you've got your Bible or some way to find a Bible through a, a phone app or something, why don't you take some time to turn there? We're in John chapter 17. This would be in my mind, one of the most nerve-wracking passages of Scripture to teach on. This would be one of the most intimate, profound, powerful moments that history will ever know. The context of John 17 is this. Jesus Christ came. He was born. He lived his life. He lived a sinless life. As he lived that life in the final three years of it, he entered into ministry. A a, a relative of his, John the Baptist, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus came and walked into the world. And at that moment was displayed. And at that moment, the battle between God and those who wanted to obliterate, to kill God, commenced. And throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see this rising tension which happens where Jesus walks around doing miracles and displaying the power of the kingdom of God and of calling people to repent, of calling people to come into a relationship with himself. And he says, I'm going to do this and I'm going to open the way for you to come to know me and to have a relationship with me because there is going to become a time where I'm going to be killed. But I'm going to be buried and I'm going to rise again and I'm going to ascend to heaven. And the Gospels move with increasing focus towards that moment. And then we get in the Gospel of John, the Gospel we're studying at the moment. We get the upper room discourse, as it's called, which is Jesus in a room around a meal table with his disciples. And he begins teaching them, he begins telling them, it's like the final things that I want you to know before I go to be crucified, to die on that cross. And it gets to the end of that moment, and two different Gospels give different accounts. And you might say, aha, there's a contradiction. No, it's just two different people giving their own reflections of what actually happened. And in the Gospel of Mark, you have, it says, you know, they went out uh, and they sang a song and then they went out. You know, I've often wondered what that song was and I did a little bit of digging and a little bit of research and there were some psalms that were usually sung around that time and it's highly likely that they sang Psalm 116, which starts with this, I love the Lord for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me, and the anguish of the grave overcame me, and I was overcome by distress and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me, he sang those words. But John tells us that he prayed. And we have this moment where we get to peek into the most holy place where the Son of God turns to heaven and says, Father, and he prays. And when he prays, there is no parable, there is no metaphor, There is no illustration. We hear straightforward fact from his mouth. 
And there is so much to learn from this prayer, this deepest expression of his reality. Do you realize this most profound activity at this most critical of moments was to pray? John 17. What did he pray? Well, he prayed firstly for himself. We'll cover that today. And he prayed for his disciples, and Sarah will teach on that next week. And then Simon, the week after that, he prayed for all of the followers of Jesus. And the focus of his prayer seems to have four compelling themes which we do well to emulate in our own life. He repeatedly prayed to the Father, Father. He was constantly concerned for the glory and reputation of God in his prayer. He was concerned for the kingdom and the work of God in his prayer. And he was concerned that people would keep themselves from evil in his prayer. That's four great themes, really, for our prayer, isn't it? John 17, verse 1. He looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Throughout his ministry, he would often say, my hour has not yet come. They'd try and take him and and make him king, and he'd say, no, no, my hour has not yet come. He would would go into obscurity and say, no, you need to be out in public. No, 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 my hour has not yet come. In this moment, he says, Father, my hour has come. This was the hour. This was the reason. This was the moment. This is why he came to earth. Everything is about this hour. It's like all of eternity, all of creation, all of the universe comes down into this moment. Glorify your son that your son might glorify you. You want a theme for eternity? There it is. Glorify your son that your son might glorify you. To glorify is to recognize and to declare the truth of who a person is. To honor, to praise, to invest with dignity, to give esteem, to put in an honorable position, to celebrate them. Jesus is saying this, as the Father declares the truth of who Jesus is, Jesus will declare the truth of who the Father is. As the truth of Jesus is proclaimed, The truth of the Father will be proclaimed. Glorify your Son, that your Son will glorify you. For you've granted him authority over all people, that that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. That's a really interesting little turn of phrase there, isn't there? You know, so often we think and we sing, we say, thank you, Lord, that you gave Jesus for us. 
And we have this sense that, that God's given Jesus to us. You know what Jesus prays in this most intimate of moment? Thank you, Father, that you gave them to me. Do you realize you're a gift from the Father to Jesus? You're a gift. God looks at you and he says, you, my friend, you're a gift from the Father to Jesus. Does that change your thoughts about who you are? This authority that he'd been given, it is the power to rule. It is jurisdiction. It is the power, the authority, the ability, the right to judge. He said that earlier in John chapter 5. He said, just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son. That all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. You see, in, in this moment, we, we get to know what happens when we die. We get to know what happens when every person dies. And it's this, you're raised from the dead and you are judged. And the basis of that judgment that you and I and every single person who has ever lived and will ever live is based entirely and completely on this one question. Have you honored the Son? Have you honored Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ has these words of life. Did you know it? At the end of the day, it doesn't actually matter what you think, what you want to believe, what you choose to believe, what construct you put around life. It doesn't matter how powerful or compelling the argument is that you want to try and establish. It doesn't matter what books you read. It doesn't matter what authors you accumulate to back up any and every position you have. At the end of the day, it all comes down to this one simple fact. You die, you are raised, you are judged. You are judged on this one question. Have you honored Jesus Christ? I love the fact that Google is so trustworthy. I love the fact that you can trust everything you read on it. And to illustrate this point, some of you will have heard this. There is an actual transcript of a U.S. naval ship with the Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October 1995. The radio conversation was released by the Chief of Naval Operations on the 10th of the 10th, 1995. The American says this, Please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid collision. Canadians, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid collision. Americans, this is the captain of the U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadians, no, I say again, divert your course. Americans, this is the aircraft carrier USS Abraham Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand you change your course 15 degrees to the north. That is one five degrees north. All countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Canadians, this is the lighthouse. Your call. (laughs) 
Now this is eternal life. That they know you, verse 3, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Thing is, everyone lives forever. The question is not if you do or if you don't. And and, and one of the challenges that we seem to have gotten to our Christian faith is that we, we box, we say when we come to Jesus, it's about getting eternal life as though if we don't have him, we don't have eternal life. Well, the reality is everyone lives forever. The question is where will you live it? Will you live with him in heaven? Will you live apart from him in hell? Everyone lives forever. And there is a danger of shortchanging the enormity of God's gift by simply seeing it as a life extender. And when we say eternal life, we tend to think, well, that means I'll start now and I'll never stop. That's not actually what Jesus meant. In John three sixteen to 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That tells us that because God loves, God gave his son, and we believe, then we receive. It's not belief about God, it's belief in God. And as we've looked at, as we've gone through this gospel of John, we've seen that to believe in Jesus Christ means I will take the full weight of my life and I will place it on him and I will take my legs off so I've got no weight of my own. I'll trust him. I will surrender my life to him utterly and completely and totally for everything. And on the weight of the evidence where there is truth and where the glory of Jesus Christ, the character of Jesus Christ is clear, I give my life to him. I believe in him. I do, and as I do, I'm given this gift of eternal life. So what is eternal life? Well, Jesus, in his prayer, defines it. He says eternal life is that you might know the only true God. Think of it this way. Currently, I am in the middle of summer life. You know that because I am tanned and I am hot. I mean, I'm warm. (laughs) There's only one in here who's allowed to say I'm hot. Everything else is a bonus. (laughs) I I know that I am in summer life because I can see observable changes in me. I know I would be in winter life if I was kind of pasty and and cold. I know I would be in sporting life if I had more developed muscles and if I could run more than from here to the end of the car park without getting out of breath. I know that I would be in destructive life if I was taking things that were causing my body to fall apart. Life is active involvement with your environment. You're actively in there. We're alive and active to that life. Death, on the other hand, is the cessation of involvement with that environment, whether it's physical or spiritual. So let's take that principle and let's see what Jesus is actually saying here. Eternal life means we are alive and active 
to eternity. Well, what is eternity? Eternity is the rule and the reign of God. So, how will I know I have eternal life? I have eternal life because I have put the full weight of my life on Jesus Christ. I have trusted him. I have come to that place where I've gone, I understand. I understand who you are. I understand your character. I understand you died for me. You were buried and you rose again. I now surrender my life to you. I make a conscious decision to surrender my life to you. And I have eternal life, which means, yes, I will live forever. Yes, now I will live forever with you. I will be in relationship with you forever. But there is more to that. And First John gives us so many great illustrations of what it means to have eternal life. It means that we will begin to display eternal life, just like I am currently displaying summer life. And so what are some of the things that we will display? We'll display a hunger for God. We'll display a growing hunger for his word. We'll display a growing sensitivity to sin, those things that are opposite to what God is. And Sarah, I know we'll get into that next week, but we'll we'll become more and more troubled by sin. We'll become more and more passionate about the gospel. Because that is why you and I are here. This authority that Jesus has, he continues to have and he commissions us to go and make disciples, which is why as a church we're not satisfied by just meeting in here. Because look around, there's not much more room. We're creating more room by going into more locations that we can tell more and more people about Jesus Christ. We're more passionate about the gospel. Eternal life means you're more committed to the church. You might say, well, what does that mean, the institution? No, one another. You find your heart is drawn towards the church, the organism, the people. You find you have a love for people. You find you have a care for people. You find that your heart breaks and is moved for those around you. You desire for them too to become more and more like Christ and you are driven to serve and to love others. You know, maybe that's the eternal life 10. I brought you glory, says Jesus, by finishing the work you gave me to do. Jesus prayed with a divine confidence and assurance. He saw that the work on the cross, get this, he saw it is already finished. Hmm. There was a sense it wasn't. He was about to go from this prayer to that garden, to that courtroom, to that flogging pole, to that road, to those nails, to that cross. All of that was ahead of him, yet in this prayer here, he says, Father, the work is finished. And yet in about 24, 36 hours' time, he's also going to cry from the cross, it is finished. Why did he pray it here? 
when it wasn't quite done there? In the greatest sense, the work was already done. We know that because in Revelation chapter 13, in the day to come, all the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, the Antichrist. You know, the spiritual battle, some people say, oh, it's just, just leave your religion to one side. I want to tell you this, there is a satanic agenda and it's going to be unleashed on this world like never before. And all the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all those whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. Those who are not followers of Jesus. But get this, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. The work on the cross was completed in the heart and the mind of God before the world was spoken into being. (laughs) It just now needed to be done. Wow. You know what's amazing? In the same way, the work of your personal Transformation is already done in the heart and in the mind of God. He sees you that way. The work just now needs to be done. Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter 3. He said, let us live up to what we have already attained. You come in here and you go, man, I've blown it again. God sees you done. You come into him and you go, man, I, I've messed up and I've done this and I've done that. He says, but I, I see you as done now. Live up to what you already are. You know the beauty of, of Jesus is he doesn't give you 35 million steps to take to get to a place where you're right with him and he'll finally accept you. He totally accepts you right now. And in the freedom of that, he says, now live up to what you already are. You're a set-apart, loved, chosen daughter and son of God. Now, live like it. Lift your head. Put your shoulders back. Step forward into who you actually are in him. And now, Father, he prays. Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. Like he keeps his head turned toward the Father and he says, Father, as I go to the cross, bring truth and declare truth to the world I created. You know, the cross was designed by humanity to achieve the greatest humiliation possible of people. And Jesus hung there and turned it into the place of greatest glorification. The cross was designed to be the place where the victim hung. And Jesus conquered it as the victor. The cross was designed to show how foolish people were to go against the then known authorities and Jesus Christ turned it into the place where the manifold wisdom of God was declared to all of creation. The cross was the place where people were defined as being weak and conquered and without hope. And Jesus 
hung there on the cross and said, I am now displaying the greatest strength that eternity will ever know. The glory I had before, I will have again. And Paul talks about that in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Through the cross, the power of God will be expressed. Prophecies are fulfilled. Death is defeated. The curse of sin is broken. Satan is disarmed and condemned. And the heavens will declare and the earth will shake and the graves will be emptied. On the cross, the character of God, the glory of God is revealed. On the cross, the justice of God will be met. The wrath of God will be exhausted. The grace and the mercy of God will be poured out. And the love of God will be expressed. And the power of God will be revealed. Do you realize that in heaven today, there is a glorified man, the man, God, man, Jesus Christ. And because he is glorified in heaven, sinners like you and I can be saved on earth. Here's the question. It's your call. Do you know him? Have you given your life to Would you pray with me? Father, in this moment, would you find in us a people who would glorify you? Would you find in us a people who will live for your glory. Father, in this moment, we surrender ourselves to Him, our Lord and our Savior. In this moment, for those of us who, who know you, Jesus, we freshly come and say, take my life. Let it be wholly given fully to you. Take every moment of every day. Take all I have and all my ways and let them flow to you in unending, unstoppable, overwhelming praise. Lord, Father, for those in this room who maybe in this moment don't yet know you. Might you reveal yourself to them? Might they have that wonderful, wonderful moment of realization that you love them, that you care for them, that you are pursuing relationship with them? 
Father, this is our prayer. In Jesus' name. Amen. He starts his prayer with those words, the hour has come. Everything had been prepared up to that point, and they prayed. Today is a significant day for us as a church. As Simon has already mentioned, we're 28 days away from having two locations, city here and east, over in the eastern suburbs. The reason that is is because as a church we've put the full weight of our existence on this message of Jesus, on his authority, on eternal life and on the finished work. And as you know, if you were here last year and if you weren't, let me just quickly bring you up to speed with this. Last year we responded to the prompt of the Spirit to do whatever it takes to reach 1% of Wellington region with this message. That means we're looking to see 4,500 people baptized. And to do this, we, we needed to change how we do church. So instead of being one church meeting here in one location, we're about to become one church in many locations, starting with this new service led by Simon and Jenny Gill in the eastern suburbs. And we're 28 days away from that. 28 days away from launching the city and east locations for the street church. And our prayer is that every single one of us does whatever it takes to share and to declare this message of the gospel with our family, with our friends, with our neighbors. And here's the challenge that we have as a church. Over the past 12 months, God has provided incredibly. Teams have been raised up, teams of people passionate about the gospel here and in the East. A church has been structured to enable us to operate as one church, many locations, and God has provided and is continuing to provide the financial resources that are needed. All the staffing roles that we've been going for for the past, gosh, it feels like forever, past year, 12 months, 18 months, they've all been filled. And the leading of the Spirit has been so clear and so compelling that we're all set to go in the next 28 days. There's just one minor detail that we haven't quite got sorted yet. We've got nowhere to meet. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And and, um, we we had, uh, some of you know, we did the the Christmas service at uh, St. Christopher's and, and that in the end didn't work out and we discovered some more about the building too which made us feel uncomfortable about having a congregation in there. And so, so that's not going to work. So, um, Simon's incredibly relaxed about this. <laughs> and and I, I'm just, yeah, this is fine, this is all good. And actually, seriously and genuinely, where God guides, God provides. We know it. And why I'm so excited about this is I want you to experience the joy of this. So over the next 28 days, we're praying. And we're praying for a building. And I, yeah, there's, there's been conversations like, do we pull the plug? And I go, you've got to be kidding me. Right? If we have to pull the plug in 27 days, okay, we will. If we don't have anywhere to meet. But yeah, his lounge will take, you know, <coughs> 10 people. So that's a start. <laughs> because actually it's not about a building, is it? It's about people. 
because we've seen the Holy Spirit at work over in that area and we know that he's opening up those opportunities and those conversations and things that are happening. So we know that that's what's in place. If there is a small issue of where we meet, well, God's got that somewhere, somehow. We're working hard to sort it, but God's got it. So we're praying. And we're actually launching 28 days of prayer. That's one prayer which we weren't expecting to pray when we set up the 28 days of prayer, but that's one that you can pray all 28 days or as many days as it takes for us to find that building, wherever it might be. So I want to say to you just in a similar vein, a little nod to what our Lord did. This is the year. We've got to pray. This is the moment. We've got to pray. And so to help us do that, over these next 28 days, we will be praying. And here's how it's going to work. We've set up 28 prayer prompts. The first one, which will be for tomorrow, goes like this. It goes like this. There it goes. Right? That's tomorrow, 29th of Jan. Now you'll notice that 1 does not equal 1 February. Right? One is tomorrow, which is the 29th of January. It's not a calendar month. It's not 28 days in the month. We'll just write the next day is 29th of January. We're going to pray for service leaders tomorrow. So those are people, like Simon was the service leader today. I guess I am in terms of teaching and, and worship. He's just praying for people who lead. Pray that those who serve each Sunday in the services in the leadership role, that they'll be led by the Holy Spirit as they lead each congregation in spirit and in truth. And however the Lord leads you then to continue to pray into that, and each day there will be prayer over different ministries, over the community, over the, over the, the uh, people, uh, over the, what we need in terms of provision. We'll, we'll cover the whole thing over 28 days. So, so how do I get this? Real simple. If you've got the app, it'll appear on your app as a notification. So if you haven't downloaded the app yet, that's the way to do it. If you've got Facebook and you follow the street um, page, it'll appear as a Facebook notification. If neither of those are appealing to you, we've printed off some copies of all 28 days in a pa- paper copy out in the foyer, and if they go, we could probably email it to you, but they're there because why we want every single person to pray. You with me? You know, someone once said that, I think it was Giles Wood Sanders, you know, prayer is the work. What you then do is simply mopping up what God's already done. And that's borne out in what Jesus did. He prayed, God, this work is finished. Then he went out and did it. You know, in the same way, what we'll do in these 28 days is the work. So let's, as a church, get to prayer. Now, you might decide as a life group to spend time praying. I'd encourage you to do that. You might decide as, as, as a group of people, we'd love to get together uh, and do that. And if you're sitting there having some random prompting, say, man, wouldn't it be good if I could pray with other people? We'll do it. Right? There is no officially sanctioned yay or nay on what you do. It's simply like if you're led to prayer, pray. And let's cover these next 28 days in prayer. And at some point soon, we'll stand up here and we go, yeah, and by the way, the facility is there and we're on. And even if it's not, just let me say this. At best, we'll defer week by week. Right? Because we know this is where God's leading us. Right? So, we're on a journey of faith, friends. 
We're on a journey of waiting for God's provision and God's encouragement. So we need to be praying. We need to be following each other. We need to be doing this in a way where we bring glory to God. All good? Right. What I want you to do now? I want you to pray. Honest and, and just in groups where you are now, if you're visiting the street, you're checking out church, and you have no idea what this Christian faith is all about, and you've just heard me say, right, we're now going to pray, and you've all of a sudden gone, I knew it, they were weird. <laughs> Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do what Jesus just did in the passage I was talking about. We're going to talk to our Heavenly Father. And we're going to ask Him to help us to do what He's called us to do which is to reach people with the message of the gospel, all that I've been talking about this morning. And so you're going to see us in little groups all around this room. We're just going to turn, you'll find some people turn behind them and others will sort of lean forward in front. And for the next four or five minutes, you'll just hear a whole lot of talking going on. But we're not talking to each other. We're talking to our Father who loves us. And we're doing that because we're so passionate about seeing people reached for Jesus because we know how much he loves you so that's what we're going to do and once we've prayed for a while then Josh and the team are going to come up and we're going to worship because there's a song which is on our heart and we can't look at John 17 without declaring how worthy he is so Josh will interrupt and that you might think, well, why has he done that? Well, it's because I've asked him to. So, so that's where we're going over the next 10 or so minutes, 15 minutes until the end of the service, okay? So get yourself into groups and let's pray over the provision for East and pray over all that God is doing as we reach our region before 5,000 people. Right, turn around, pray.